Well, we're coming uh, in 1 Corinthians 10 really to the climax of these three chapters that we've been in in this ongoing series in 1 Corinthians where Paul has been teaching us about our personal decisions and along the way challenging us greatly, showing us the huge implications that uh, decisions that perhaps we may have thought were just about us actually affect a much wider group of people, that is this church family. And I really do hope that you have felt that challenge as we've gone along. And as I've been thinking about it again this week, looking at chapter 10, this final instalment really in, the, in this issue of making decisions, uh, a friend of mine came into my mind again, a, a friend who is a very great friend. His name is Scott, uh, but he is by no means great at making decisions. Uh, there are many examples I could give you of that. Let me, let me just give you a few. There was the moment uh, we were driving back from the beach at one time in Sydney and he made the decision to tie the drawstring of his board shorts to the steering wheel of the car. I'm not sure why he made that decision, but he made that decision. It was going fine as we were driving along straight. It's just as we got to the corner, things started to go horribly wrong as uh, Scott was winched up onto the dashboard and drove facing backwards. Then there was a decision that he made while we were on a beach mission together to shave the letter Z on both sides of his head. He thought it would look cool. Uh, turns out it doesn't <laughs> look cool. Or the decision he made once when falling in love with a girl to declare his love for her with a phone call at three o'clock in the morning. Again, turns out that's not a great time to receive a message of undying love. Scott struggles with decisions. Uh, but the one that sticks in my memory most of all is uh, a camping trip we uh, took together. Uh, there we were at the end of the day looking for a campsite and uh, we made our first bad decision which was to camp on top of a cliff and uh, there we were and we'd set up the fire for the night, uh, built, the, built the fire, got ready to cook our meals and s- slowly realised that we were running out of firewood. So Scott, being the outdoorsy sort of guy he is, decided he would go get the firewood. So off he went, ten minutes passed, still no Scott. And uh, we're getting a little worried, 20 minutes passed, still no Scott. And then uh, finally we all grew silent, worrying a little about what had happened to him. And then faintly in the distance you can hear Scott calling our names. And so we sort of wander around looking for him and we sort of wandered up from the campsite to where the, the cliff face was. And this was no sort of tourist cliff face with a big sort of protective fence. This is the middle of nowhere and we can't see Scott anywhere. And then eventually we hear the faint voice and it's actually coming from over the edge of the cliff. And uh, if you've ever seen one of those cartoons where the trees sort of point out the side of the cliff, uh, there's Scott grabbing hold of uh, this little tree and in his other hand is the firewood. <laughs> and it took us about ten minutes to convince Scott, Scott, now you have two arms, the arm holding the tree, that's an important arm, hang on to that one. Uh, the other one let go of the firewood. And uh, try as we might, minute after minute, Scott was convinced he couldn't let go. He was committed to the task. He'd been given the job of getting the firewood. I can't let go. Eventually uh, he did and we uh, winched him to safety. Some decisions, while straightforward, when the moment comes, the pressure point comes to make the decision, they are very hard to make. And I reckon 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the climax that we reach in this issue uh, today, it deals with that very problem. If you remember back in chapter 8 verse 1 we saw what the issue was. The Corinthians or some of them had made the decision that they were free to continue to eat at these cultic festivals, meals, sacrifice to idols, that they were free to do that. It it didn't matter, idols were nothing and they could do what they want. Uh, That's not an issue that many of us deal with but along the way we've seen our personal decisions that we perhaps have freedom to decide one way or another on. 
uh, that they too, uh, uh, they too affect others. Over the course of these chapters, Paul has broadened that vision we have of our decisions. Firstly, he gave us the knowledge we need to have as we make decisions, that we are creatures made to know God as Father. That's the primary relationship of concern as we make our decisions, that we're made to love this family. That's the context in which I make my choices. And in chapters 8 and 9, we saw the wonderful reality that my decisions are so powerful, they have the capacity to either curse or bless others, to bring damage uh, or to bring blessing uh, to those around me. I can build people up by the way I make my decisions. That's the wonderful framework in which we make our decisions and I can, by my decisions, bless others. If I would forego freedoms, I can do that. And I can almost hear Paul saying at the end of chapter 9 at this point, so Corinthian, don't you think it would be worth forsaking your right to eat this meal if it would build up other Christians? Don't you think that would be worthwhile? And you can hear the Corinthians almost saying back, yeah, you're right, that, that seems to make sense. Okay, says Paul, so well, it's time to let go. Just a minute, says the Corinthians, just give me a minute. Come on, says Paul, it is time to let go. Okay, says the Corinthians. But Paul says, you're still holding on. This is serious. You need to let go. I can't. I can't let go. Chapter 10 is Paul's attempt to do for the Corinthians what we did for Scott on that cliff. At the moment, when the moment comes to make their decision, the moment comes to put that into action, this decision to forsake my own freedom to something for the good of another, Rather than loosen our grip, we find our grip tighten around this freedom. And so Paul shouts with the greatest possible compassion in this chapter. In verse 12 you see it there, if you don't let go, you are going to fall. Paul introduces all of that for us back in the last verse of chapter 9 with this jolt. Having shown us that our decisions have the capacity to to bless or curse others in in the present, if you like, he now jolts us with this, my decisions have the capacity to disqualify me from the prize of heaven. A prize that was given to me by my faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. My personal decisions have the capacity to disqualify me if they show that my faith is mere words, a mere sham. It is possible, Paul says, to make decisions in such a way as to miss out on the prize of eternal relationship with my heavenly Father. Now that's serious, isn't it? All of a sudden we see just how big the implications of our decisions really are. We're going to hear this today and I think it's hard for us to hear, those of us who perhaps feel assured, even complacent. I know Jesus, I know I'm going to heaven, I know all that and so I'm free to live as I wish. Paul meets such complacency not with assurance but with verse 12 this, if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. He's going to do that firstly by pointing us back to the examples of our forefathers who fell themselves. He shows us uh, the the example of Israel in the wilderness, in the promised land, on their way home to their home with their God. Now I reckon it's easy when we we look at sort of the stories of the Old Testament generations to sort of see them as uh, distant from us, disconnected and not really that important. They're from another time, they're like some dusty museum display. But verse 13, we're told their experience that Paul will show us now is common to us all. And we can almost see them as uh, from another religion. They're the the Jewish people, we're Christians. 
most of us are like the Corinthians, are Gentiles. We're the, the nations, if you like. We feel little connection to them. But Paul calls them our forefathers here. This is our family. We are those on whom the fulfilment of the ages has come. We are those who the promise made to the very first Jew, Abraham, has come to us. This is our family. And so verses 1 to 4, we are looking at family footage. And in there we see the blessings they have in common with us. Have a look at verse 1. Paul says, Don't forget that your forefathers enjoyed the same blessing of God's presence that you do. All the way through the desert, we're told, they were given the cloud of God's glorious presence and guidance. He was always with them. There was no experience they had in the desert where he left or forsook them. He was there. And how much more so us. We are the community of God's people, this side of Jesus' death and resurrection, this side of the Pentecost where he has given us not a cloud but his very spirit. Each step of our journey on our way home, God leads us by his spirit through his word as he is doing right now. How blessed we are just as our forefathers were. And second, again in verse 1, don't forget that they like us knew the rescue of God. He had led them out of slavery in Egypt, enslaved as they were to a cruel dictator and on the path to death. But with his mighty outstretched arm, he rescued them through the sea, we're told. Because that was the moment they knew they'd been rescued. That was the moment as they fled out of Egypt, as they found themselves before the Red Sea with the Egyptian army charging at them, hemmed in. And the rescue came, the sea parted, they walked free and behind them the waves crashed down on their enemies, defeating them all. Total freedom. Again, how much more is it our experience? We, a community who also were slaves to a cruel power, much crueler than any mere pharaoh, slaves to sin and death. But we are a people, again, rescued from that slavery by the mighty outstretched arm of our God on his cross. We walk free from that cross as the waves of his judgment crash down, not on us, but his son. And our enemies, even the enemy of death, lie defeated on the ground. Don't forget, says Paul, like your forefathers, you enjoy the blessing of God's rescue. And third, don't forget that they, like us, were baptised into relationship with God. How much more so us, baptised through the death and the resurrection of Jesus into relationship with the God we can now call Father. And finally, there's this, verse 4. Don't forget that they, like us, were sustained by God. The satisfaction, the food and drink he gave them all the way towards the promised land. It came from the very same source that yours does, Christ. They, like us, knew the blessing of food that John 6 says will not spoil, that will endure to eternal life. Food that only Christ can give. Paul wants us to see our common experience with our forefathers who enjoyed the same blessings we did because of this. Do you see it there in verse 5? God was not pleased with them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. Such a tragic picture, isn't it? They've ended up in the exact place their enemies did at the Red Sea. The victory, the freedom of that moment is now replaced by this trail of failure all the way to the promised land as bodies lie there in the wilderness. Why? They were just like us, enriched by God's blessing in every way, all with the promise of a home with their God to come. Their hearts were free and blessed by their God. And yet they grew restless. 
They began to wander, we're told in verse 6, their hearts began to be set on evil things, craving other foods, convinced that satisfaction wasn't found in God, it was found elsewhere. Paul warns us, you need to see just how easily you could do the same. Hearts set not on the blessing God provides, but hearts gripped by evil things, he says. That is any good thing, any good thing that God has given us that has become for us the ultimate thing. That when the call comes for us to let that go, perhaps for the sake of others, as we've seen in recent chapters, we find ourselves so set that we say like Scott, I can't. And in the verses that follow, Paul gives us examples again of how our forefathers have done this and really the key one is there in verse 7, the key from which all other examples flow, that is idolatry. He says, do not be idolaters as some of them were. An idol, said Martin Luther, is whatever your heart clings to and relies upon, that which one loves and trusts and serves above all else. you know anything like that in your life? Or as Tim Keller puts it, a good thing that has become for us our ultimate thing. Can you see how good things that we enjoy that our God has given us to receive with thanksgiving can become so much our heart's desire that we can't imagine letting them go? In verse 7, Paul gives us the example of our forefathers at Mount Sinai worshipping the golden calf. So soon after that Red Sea rescue, and here they are, Crafting, we're told in Exodus 32, out of their possessions, crafting an idol to worship. And this is what Aaron says to them in Exodus 32. He says, of these, these possessions now an idol, he says, these are your gods, the ones who brought you out of Egypt. Out of fear and uncertainty in the wilderness, they begin to crave security and satisfaction in other gods. And Paul's warning to the Corinthians is this, these there is real danger that these meals that you feel so free to enjoy, that they could become that for you. It's worth asking the question, why were the Corinthians so determined to enjoy these meals? Why were they so determined to hang on to that freedom? What made those meals so enticing that they wouldn't let them go? Was it the fact that uh, these meals were so significant in Corinthian society that if you wanted to be someone in Corinth, you had to be there at these meals? This is where you were if you were someone in Corinth, if you wanted status and significance. Or was it the pleasure of these meals? They were a lot of fun. Or was it the desire to belong, to be part of things? To win such prizes, it was worth participating in such meals. It was the game you played in Corinth. But, Paul says, it's a deadly game. We need to heed the warning against idolatry too. How easy it would be in a, a culture like ours to have a heart set on status or significance, increasingly enmeshed in our career such that we grow more satisfied in, in it than our God or gripped more and more by the freedom that money brings us, rejoicing more in our house or our holidays or the plans that we make rather than in him or craving belonging to our culture, being more and more a part of things, whatever that might be in our context, taking steps to be more a part of things that inevitably distance you from this family. Let me ask you, what makes you you who you are? Where does your significance, your sense of belonging, your status, your satisfaction, where does it come from? 
If you were to want more of any of those things, your significance or status or satisfaction, where would you go to find them? If to your career or your stuff or your friends or your family, then even if you claim, as the Corinthians do in chapter 8, to know that there is one true God, your heart betrays you. Verse 6, these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. And out of this uh, idolatry stems other other forms of idolatry as well. You see it there in verse 8, I'm calling it the God of hedonism. Out of idolatry flows sexual immorality as one of its main fruits. It was a key part of Corinthian culture. In fact, it was a key part of these meals. It was just part and parcel of it. And so here in verse 8 he shows us that such a temptation wasn't new to the Corinthians. He gives us the example again of Israel in the wilderness participating in sexual immorality in the context of a meal just like this. Sexual immorality and idolatry have always gone together. And I think again we too need to acknowledge just how much this could be our God, how much our culture is soaked in sex. And not the good, creative, wonderful gift that God has given us, but the hollow shell that we have made it after turning this good thing into an ultimate thing. Sex is a good gift, but a miserable God. It is cruel and destructive when it becomes that for us. And then in verse 9, we're given another example of how their hearts were set on other things, this time the God of freedom. Uh, Paul cites them testing the Lord, convinced that the, the, in the wilderness generation that they could do what they want. God wasn't going to stop them. And perhaps the Corinthians are doing the same thing, participating in these meals and they're thinking, well, nothing's happened to us yet, so we're fine. Testing the Lord's patience. Again, heed the warning. This is the God of our age, the right, the freedom to have my freedom unchallenged. No one tells me what to do with my choices. And you can tell if freedom is your God if you bristle when your decisions are challenged or questioned by others. Decisions about where you live or what you buy or what you do with your time. How dare anyone tell me what to do? Such things can become part of our life which are sort of free, sovereign territory that you will defend against any incursion. No one comes there. And we can so easily end up with the only restriction on our choices being opportunity. If God didn't want me to do it, he would have shut the door. And then there's one final one in verse 10. I'm calling it the God of if only, the God of grumbling. The idolatry that grows to resent anything that the gospel may cause me to miss out on. Because if only I had that thing, then life would be so much different. Paul again cites the example of the wilderness generation, Numbers 11, where they grumbled against God and the two words that summed up their grumbling were these, if only. Well, here's my challenge to you. Next time you find yourself grumbling, and we all do, ask yourself, what is my if only that would change everything? If only that. Grumbling is caused by a heart that looks to something else for rescue or fulfilment other than the God who made and redeemed you. Take care, says Paul, lest you who stand should fall. And so, brothers and sisters, I think in these verses we see just how significant our decisions really are. Those who set their hearts on evil things didn't stumble a little bit along the way. They fell and died in the desert. Blessed as we are, their hearts wandered to the point that when the time came to let go of some freedom, they found they couldn't. 
let go, says Paul to the Corinthians, and I suspect his fear is that they will say, just like their forefathers, I can't. So feel the weight of this. For some here, our freedom to receive with thanksgiving our homes or possessions or food and drink and culture, time, career, community, children, whatever it might be, slowly becomes by our decisions, all of which can be justified. It becomes a good thing fashioned into an idol, just like they did at Mount Sinai, an idol that our heart becomes set upon. This passage is God's clarion call to us. If you think you're standing firm in these things, be careful that you don't fall. This is a word to shake us from complacency and if we think that we can let go of these things that we might cherish too much at any time, I can let go at any time. Paul has another warning for us as we come towards a close. There is a reason that such things are easy to get our hearts set upon. There is a reason that they're so very hard to let go of. These good things that can become idols for us behind them, they are nothing in themselves, yes, he says in verse 19, but behind them is a horrible evil. You see it there in verse 20, idols are nothing, yes, but that doesn't mean they have no power. Behind this nothing is an evil lie that takes our focus off God and onto idols. Behind them is demons. It is the demonic lie that Satan has told us from the beginning which our culture is soaked in, the lie that says God is not good. There is more to life than the blessings he offers. If you give your heart to these things as well as him, you will not surely die. And so we buy into that lie, bit by bit by our decisions, mistrusting God and growing to trust more and more in the idol of career or relationship or whatever it might be. And Paul says to worship an idol is to give your heart and your trust, your participation or fellowship is what he means here, not to God but to Satan in the end when you strip it back. Paul quotes here Deuteronomy 32 which Linda read out for us uh, where we're told they sacrifice to demons which are not God, gods that they had not known, gods that recently appeared. How many of our idols are Johnny-come-latelys? It's a picture of God's children spurning the love of their father who gave them everything. And like the prodigal son before us, we say, I want all of this but none of you. Let's just pretend you're dead. The problem with setting your heart on an idol is that they make miserable gods, demanding endless sacrifice to please them in the hope that they will give us what we crave. They are, Isaiah says, a burden to the weary. Can you imagine a worse thing to give a weary man than a burden? That's what fellowship with Satan and his demons and the lie they tell does for us. Though one cries out to them, they will not answer. And so as we close, uh, where, how do you respond to this? Having seen the example of our forefathers, having seen why it's so very hard to let go of our freedoms, see one more thing, see where to run in all of this. Amidst the warning, there is a wonderful, strong and gracious comfort from our God for those who see what's at stake in the decisions they make. Firstly, there's this, verse 13, you must know that this struggle that you have as you make decisions, a wandering, gullible heart, I have and you have, you're not alone. Whether you feel weak or strong when you make decisions, you need to know that absolutely all of us have this struggle and we will all the way to heaven. Each decision we make will be a struggle and so we need help. We need to help each other 
The people around you have hearts prone to wander. And so be honest about that with each other. Help each other. It's okay to struggle. It's when the struggling stops you know you're dead. And second there's this. How wonderful is this? In this struggle to be faithful to your God, see what your God is like in verse 13. He is faithful. He's not struggling. Is that not the most wonderful characteristic of your God? He is faithful. How unlike us is our God? When we make decisions that see our heart increasingly gripped by other things than him, he is jealous about that, incredibly jealous. But would you want him to be any other way? He is strongly opposed to your wandering because he loves you. But it's not a sort of a fitful, take my ball and go home type jealousy. No, verse 13, he stays with us, faithful in the midst of the struggle. And with this wonderful assurance, each time we struggle, each time, no matter how hard it is, he will give us a way out so that we don't fall. And what's his way out? I love this. Uh, you go to God with your decision. Uh, what should I do, Lord? How am I, how am I meant to struggle under the weight of this temptation? Do you see his wonderful, simple plan in verse 14? Run. Run. Flee idolatry. That's how you do it. It's his urgent, simple, radical cry. Every time you feel the, the tug of your heart, run. Every time you feel your heart wooed by another lover, run away. All that's on offer there behind the shiny lie that Satan sells is a burden that leads to death. Run away. It's the only sensible thing to do, says Paul in verse 15. And so, brothers and sisters, run. Flee from idolatry. Flee and take shelter in the one who says, come to me all who are weary, weary in your yearning for security or satisfaction or whatever it might be, weary not finding that in the broken systems of our world. Run to me and find rest. Paul says in verse 16 to the Corinthians who day after day went to these meals for fellowship, he says, there's another meal altogether on offer to you. Another table, the table your God prepares and invites you to fellowship. Come and feed on the meal he provides. Here is satisfaction. And what's wonderful about this meal is that we don't have to come there with our sacrifices, hoping he'll be pleased with us, hoping he'll let us sit at his table. No, all the sacrifice has been made by his son. Here is the one true God who has made that sacrifice, who says to you, come and let go of your idols. Come, find not a burden, but a God who promises to carry your burdens. Come and find the God who promises everything he is and then delivers. Come and find rest. Let's pray together.